0: Welcome to New Books and Poetry. I'm your host, John Ebersole, and I'm so pleased to be joined today by the critic and poet Stephen Burt. Belmont is a book of poems written by both a grown-up and written by a child, and each seem heartbreakingly aware of each other. This double consciousness, if you will, hangs around every poem, but not in a tortured or obvious way, but from afar after one has put the book down. Belmont is written by a confident adult with the disassociated charm of a child exploring. The one doesn't need to be validated by us, while the other doesn't know we're even in the room. This is the book's strange disposition, a warm and loving indifference. When young poets are eager to impress They often just bully the reader with novel forms and precious philosophy. This sort of aesthetic anxiety, often the result of some unacknowledged self-hatred or at least some psychological murkiness, doesn't exist in Belmont. Instead, Bert's virtue of clarity is reflected back to us in a number of ways. The humbling attention to craft, the amicable but rambunctious diction, and the subject matter that is both unapologetically public and private. How many poets have the guts to write about the suburbs and their family without either great cynicism or great sentimentality? Bert's poems remind us, without ever saying it, which would be indulgent, that for the soul to become quiet and easy... A person has to first suffer through nostalgia. Belmont, however, spares us most of that suffering, although we sense it behind every line, because the poet is looking at what is right in front of him, flourishing there. Burt puts an interesting burden on the contemporary reader of poetry, because in order to find pleasure in these poems, one must let the poems befriend them. And for them to befriend us, we must be willing to be as vulnerable and mature as Bert is living in Belmont. Stephen Burt, welcome to New Books and Poetry.
1: Glad to be here.
0: Excellent. So before we dive into Belmont, which I enjoyed greatly. Thank you. Can, can we back up a, a little and go ahead and tell us where you were born and raised and eventually how you discovered poetry or poetry discovered you?
1: Hmm. Um, you're reminding me of those old Campus Crusade for Cathaloo t-shirts that say it found me. Yes. <laughs> I remember this. I was born in Baltimore. I grew up in and around Washington, D.C., in Montgomery County, Maryland, and then in D.C. itself. And my parents still live in D.C. all the way up 16th Street. So I had a sense of the suburbs and also a sense of the city and a sense of government and politics. And it was a very white-collar upbringing. Uh, my father recently retired from being a firm lawyer. And my mom recently retired from doing a radio show about how to raise your kids, uh, which had 500 episodes. Wow. And I have three younger brothers, so uh, we kept her busy <laughs> before that. And she uh, has been also a junior high school English teacher. So I had a, a relatively easy path to what I later learned to call canonical literature. Although it took me a while to discover the virtues of some of it. As a child, I read poetry and I read science fiction and fantasy, and it took me a while longer to discover that there was this thing called realism in fiction, uh, and that that could be interesting as well. Yes. Um.
0: Well, you know, I'm glad you brought up fantasy and science fiction. I think that is an entryway to reading and literature for so many, and I I mean... It
1: implies that you leave. You can also stay there.
0: Well, oh, it, it totally implied that I did leave, and it reminds me of when you said uh, that kind of realistic fiction kind of encroached on, on, you know, your reading habits, and I remember... I remember when uh Vintage uh was publishing all these slim little novels and I just I bought everything published by Vintage but before that I was reading things like Dragonlance and Forgotten Realms and uh and some science fiction but I mostly uh did fantasy but you were also reading poetry then you said huh
1: Yeah Yeah um, learning learning to like more kinds of literature shouldn't be like traveling from one country to another. It should be more like learning to like new food. Yeah, precisely. So. Stop liking hamburgers. If <laughs> someone introduces you to venison or to celery uh, root.
0: <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> and did you did, uh, clearly? You grew up, and uh, did your siblings read as well?
1: Yes, yes. Although they were different. Things mm-hmm. one of one of my brothers is uh, more musical than than literary. Uh, he was in a terrific neo new wave touring rock band for a while called Nodal, mm-hmm. and he is now one of the people who decides what music goes into advertisements. Wow! Uh, another brother who's also very musical had, had, was very serious about composed music, Uh, thought at one point he was going to be a composer and decided that he would rather be an aeronautical engineer. And so that's what he does. It's actual rocket science. And then my youngest brother is now in law school and has a history of reporting on the defense industry. And we'll see where he goes. He's quite literary. He's a remarkable writer himself of uh, fiction and poetry and non fiction, but it seems like his professional life is going to involve making defense policy and making foreign policy in addition to perhaps publishing poetry and publishing fiction.
0: yeah, it's interesting how well you know how uh certain people who love writing and reading will devote their professional lives to it, where others will kind of have parallel kind of tracks with their writing and reading and a more kind of professional job. Uh, Back to your siblings real quick, because I know music is important to you. The brother, which sibling Um, and these, are these older brothers or which sibling? They're They're all younger. They're all younger. So you had the opportunity to dictate their musical taste by introducing them to everything you loved.
1: No, (laughs) no. I, I'm sure that whatever albums I left lying around had some influence, yeah. but I don't think that I told them what to do or <laughs> dictated anything. I was surprised to read about and to hear from friends about the sort of sibling relationship where the older sibling really forms the the younger, the uh, forms the next youngest. Right. Uh, and says, "Here's what to listen to. Here's what to do. Be like me." I love all three of my brothers. They're all terrific. Uh, Dan, the one who's closest in age to me, uh, actually, his birthday is today. So happy birthday to Dan. Uh, <laughs> I think he probably formed my taste as much as I formed his in, in music.
0: And what do you think uh, kind of shaped that taste? I mean, I guess that's kind of mysterious to decide uh, what music strikes you, at. you know, what those albums are that mean kind of inform your narrative growing up and whatnot. Um, do you have any uh, thoughts about that?
1: About what music I like and why I like it? Yeah.
0: Yeah, like, uh yeah, exactly.
1: I would like to say that I like different records and different compositions and different bands for different reasons mm-hmm. rather than saying, here's the kind of music I like. I've written about some of my favorite bands, uh, Game Theory and The Loud Family, the band's masterminded by Scott Miller, who died earlier this year. I'm still quite sad about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the bands that Amelia Fletcher has masterminded and, and keeps running and writing songs for and singing in, Tender Trap and Heavenly, I uh, I can keep naming favorite bands. The Kinks, The Television Personalities, Richard Thompson, uh, Bikini Kill. These are all, I love Bikini Kill. Uh, these are almost all bands that have a strong melodic sense, yes, uh, and that treat words with some respect, whether the words that they are singing are complicated or, and as in the case of Bikini Kill, simple and tremendously effective. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, they're all uh, acts, bands, artists that use a rock idiom, but are trying to do something with the rock idiom that is self-conscious and unpredictable and not party music Mm -hmm. and not the blues. And how to put this? Uh, And it has something of rebellion against the traditions of straightforward aggression. And of straight male aggression that characterize a lot of rock history.
0: Precisely. Yeah.
1: But that said, I also think the Ramones are terrific. I love the Ramones, and and they they are that.
0: Uh, yeah. And you uh, mentioned so, them in one of your poems. Definitely. Yeah. Uh yeah.
1: So right now, uh, tell
0: us how. Right now, you're at Harvard, correct? I am.
1: I'm physically at Harvard, I <laughs> and and that's where you work as well, right? Yes. Yes. Harvard treated me very well.
0: Uh. When did that happen, and uh, did it have any effect on you as a writer?
1: It's quite hard for me to imagine what it would be like as a writer if Harvard didn't exist. Mm-hmm. I was at Harvard as an undergrad. I took how to write poetry classes from Lucy brock and from Seamus Heaney. Lucy was tremendously influential as a teacher. Uh, Seamus Heaney was influential more as a presence than as someone whose poetry we were all reading. He was not the sort of workshop teacher who left a permanent mark on all of the students in his workshop in the way that somebody like Lucy Brock Brodo has been and continues to be. I took classes in how to read poetry from a number of people, preeminently Helen Bedler, who I'm very happy to have as a colleague now. I'm sort of amazed that I'm her colleague now. And certainly there's no single individual from whom I've learned more about how to read poems and how to hear and understand what's going on inside a poem. Certainly if those two people had not been teaching at Harvard when I was an undergraduate, my reading life and my writing life would have been different and worse. So was it sort of like, so you had some
0: time away after you graduated, was it kind of bittersweet to come back and uh, have a professional home there finally?
1: I wouldn't say bittersweet. I was very lucky to come back, and I'm very lucky they decided to keep me. I came back, actually, after several years of thinking that I was going to spend the rest of my life in Minnesota at McAllister College. Mm-hmm. which also treated me very well. It's a wonderful small liberal arts college. And we realized after we had Nathan, after my wife and I had our, our first child, that if we could find a situation we liked in New England we wanted to be in New England because that's where her family is. It's a little closer to D.C. also, but really the the driver for thinking about leaving Minnesota was we wanted to be in driving distance of uh, Grammy and Pop-Pop and the rest of my wife's family. And it turned out that the people who had a good job for me were the people at Harvard. And so it wasn't bittersweet to come back so much as wonderful and also slightly awkward. And the nature of the tenure process at Harvard meant that I then had to be sure that I really did finish the books that I was in the middle of writing and the articles that I was in the middle of writing as a critic so that I could maximize my chance of staying here, and I got to stay here. Excellent. Yeah. Um, It is. I will say, though, that it is odd to be physically in the same buildings and blocks doing some of the same things that I was doing when I was 19. I don't feel that I've changed that much. And yet I grade papers instead of hoping that my professor will give good grades to my papers. It is a bit awkward.
0: Yeah. Is it strange? Like, uh, because a lot of times I teach freshmen and I'll be talking to the students and I, I totally forget the age difference. I feel like I have that sensibility that we could chat about, you know, whether it is music or just, you know, just anything going on. But sometimes I'll have a colleague remind me that, in fact, I'm a lot older than them and my life experience is somewhat radically different than theirs and I should always kind of keep that in mind. And I know that, that, uh, kind of there's constant youthful quality to your work and I was wondering how you, do you have the same experience with your own students where kind of the, the age lines dissolve and reestablish themselves?
1: Yes. That said, the difference between a college teacher and traditional age college students, of course some college students are 30 and 40 and 50 and 70, but the difference between a college teacher, qua college teacher, and most college students that doesn't go away, I think, is not a difference of age, but a difference in authority and who has power over whom and for what. Yes. I... Frankly, my life experience is more like the life experience of my students who are 20 who went to the same kind of high school that I went to who grew up Jewish but not religious with enough money to take their friends out to eat when they're 16 and doing quiz bowl and so on. Yeah. My life experience is more like that student's, then that student's life experience is like somebody else who's 20, who is from a coal mining family who had never seen Harvard until she got here. Right. So I, I, I think the differences within an age group are far greater than the differences between one age and the next, really. But I do think about the way we construe stages of life and what it means to be adolescent and what it means to be grown up—I think about that a lot—and it is one of the subjects and the poems that I write.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think about that a lot as well, and I think it used to. I—I I don't know. I think that I was very much my adolescence was extended, and then, but then again, like you said, like, well, what that what the culture is telling me when I've reached some sort of sense of maturity, but I used to kind of wrestle with guilt sometimes like, Oh, I'm still listening to this, to this band out of Canada. What am I doing? You know, or I don't know. Sometimes I wrestled with, I had all these kind of youthful guilty pleasures or me and my students would live, be listening to the same thing. And uh I sometimes felt like I couldn't, like I wasn't growing up, but then that felt artificial at times too. And, Do you have anything to say about that?
1: Yes. uh, There are entire poems (laughs) about that. Definitely. I can say more to it. It's a large topic. Yeah. We are sometimes told that there are kinds of pleasure or kinds of wisdom accessible only to grown-ups, whatever that means. Mm -hmm. I am not sure that's the case. We are also told that there are kinds of pleasure accessible only to the young. That may be the case. I am
0: sympathetic to this uh, to this kind of point of view. I almost and uh, I guess i was sort of joking, but <laughs> sometimes I when I hear sometimes something my in laws will say, I will I'll say to myself, I cannot trust anybody over say 60. I like I'll just stop trusting them, but. <laughs> But that seems a bit unfair, but it goes against, it's kind of rubbing up against that idea that somehow age equates to some sort of wisdom. And in fact, I've, I've encountered many older people that appear to have none at all, where I can meet definitely somebody quite young who has a particular uncanny clarity about, <laughs> about certain sophisticated things. Yeah.
1: Part of, and it's, it's taste and it's also, uh, Ethics and responsibility. Part of the point of Discord Records was that people who were 17, who were punk rockers, could be more responsible, (laughs) could be better people in terms of living consistently and keeping their promises than most grown-ups. And that's turned out to be the case.
0: Yeah, that's a pretty incredible point to think about. Um, And I, I think I... Used to not think that because some of it, uh, having gone to a high school in Orlando, which was permeated with self-indulgence, I sometimes worried about the, about my peer groups and the way they were behaving. But in fact, I've discovered like most of them have (laughs) made pretty good decisions in their life and have gone on to be quite responsible. (laughs) So it's only shocking to see. People I thought were going to end up in jail, perhaps, are are flourishing quite well. Mm. But uh, why don't we – well, real quick, I I noticed in your – well, I did want to ask you probably a cliché question. It has to do between uh, your relationship as a prose writer and as a poet – Do you see those two, like, uh, are you writing one when you're not writing the other, or do you find that you can kind of bounce back and forth between being immersed in your poetry and being immersed in prose at the same time, or do you kind of keep those mutually exclusive?
1: The short answer is bounce back and forth. Mm -hmm. That's number two of the four options that you've you've given me. (laughs) I can write critical prose whenever I have the time and the energy and I probably write something that looks like critical prose, whether it's part of the next critical book, or a 500-word review, or comments on student papers. I probably write something that is critical prose of some kind almost every weekday. Right. I write poems unpredictably. I'll go six weeks without working on any poems, and then I'll spend all day uh, hiding from other responsibilities and working on a poem. Critical prose also gets better the more you work on it, will never be perfect, comes with word counts and deadlines and a clear sense of who's going to read it. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's an applied art. Whereas the writing of poetry is much more unpredictable and has a, a much higher failure rate and if it's successful, if, if the poem turns out to be something I don't mind having written the following year and that other people seem to want to reread the poem is successful. It can be successful in many more ways.
0: Yeah. I was, and just kind of a, maybe a weird question, but as somebody who has uh, received kind of like a lot of accolades and a lot of recognition for your critical prose, do you ever, does that ever put kind of a artificial pressure on how you want your poems to look are you i mean to be honest reading belmont you seem utterly like inner directed and unconscious of of contemporary taste or whatever uh but you have this this tremendous reputation as a critic does that ever like put i guess i'm just keep repeating myself does it ever put pressure on you as a poet
1: I don't think so. You've asked me two questions, two wonderful questions at once. I'm going to disentangle and articulate them so I can answer them separately because they have different answers. The first question is, does my practice as a critic and scholar put pressure on the poetry that I write? And the second question is, am I, as a poet, especially aware or unaware of the realm of possibilities of contemporary poetry of what other poets are doing. First question, I think my work as a critic frees me up a little bit to do what I want in my poetry because I'm not dependent on people liking my poetry for a paycheck or even for attention from the poetry world. I like attention very much. I also like health insurance and being able to pay our mortgage and our car payment and so on. Uh, And I like teaching. And I get to do all of those things, and I get to do them at Harvard, just by writing criticism and scholarship. That means it's okay if I work for a long time on a poem that turns out to be a failure. It's okay if I don't publish poems prolifically. I didn't need to have three poetry books out within seven years for tenure. I just made that up. Uh, that's not... <laughs> if Harvard treats Harvard treats people who are hired as poets in a different way from the tenure track, I didn't mean to imply anything about our system. Um, but other schools might do that. I don't need to publish poetry to have or keep my job. And I don't need to publish poetry to publish something about poetry and to be part of a conversation about poetry. So that is freeing. That enables me to worry less about how people will read my poems. And I think you detected that in the new book. And thank you. Now, are my poems conscious of the world of possibilities and the different sorts of audiences for contemporary poetry? I think that they are. And I try to write different kinds of poems, not only because I like trying new techniques and I don't want to repeat myself, but because I'm conscious of the large field, the large sets of expectations that different poetry communities and different sorts of tastes have, even within the United States, never mind in the rest of the English-speaking world, which I also try to look at. And I think I do consciously try to write some poems that are closer to prose sense that are more like what would have been recognized as a poem in 1940 or 1840, and I try to write other poems that are more aggressively contemporary, or I'm not sure if my poems are ever really aggressive, uh, that are more uh, clearly and openly contemporary. I try to have a range of styles in books of my own poetry, and I think that partly comes from trying to know how many styles other poets are using. It also comes from reading so many new books of poetry and getting bored with so many new books of poetry that do the same thing ten times in the first ten pages. Hmm. Even if that's a good thing, that's not a good book to do one thing over and over. And I may try extra hard not to repeat myself as a poet, because the work I do as a critic exposes me, unfortunately, to so many well meaning and talented, especially newer poets who repeat themselves. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, you
0: for that. Um, when I looked in the book in the notes and thanks section, I noticed uh, you wrote, you were thanking various institutions and And publishers, but you say more generally during the years in which these poems came about. Mm -hmm. Um, So tell me how Belmont kind of came together as a manuscript. It sounds like there that the poems have been really kind of germinating for a while and kind of – and judging by what you were saying about how often you write poems compared to prose, that, you know, that you have kind of a nice – a steady pace getting the poems up. But how did Belmont come together as a manuscript?
1: Well, all but two of the poems were written between 2006 and 2012. So it starts in Minnesota, and it starts just before the earliest poems in it are from, with one exception, are from just before Nathan showed up in the world, just before he was born. And most of the poems in that I was writing in 2006 and 2007, and some of the poems that I was writing afterwards react in some way to the idea that I was going to be a parent, and now I was a parent, and now we have this infant, and our lives have really changed. And we are a family with a child. Now we're a family with two children, which is great.
0: Yes, congratulations.
1: I feel bad that Cooper, who is three now, isn't in more of the poems in Belmont, because... The book went to press uh, when he was two ish. Mm-hmm. And there is actually a chapbook that I wrote when he was an infant and I was home with him more called Why I Am Not a Toddler and Other Poems by Cooper Bennett Burt, age one. <laughs> and they're versions of or responses to famous earlier poems. One of them is called In the Backseat of the Prius. Um, <laughs> uh,
0: Let me ask you real quick. Uh, yeah, and that
1: did they finish the sentence there?
0: Oh yeah, no, I was having trouble hearing you for a moment on your microphone, but you're good now. Okay, all right. <laughs> There's just a quick kick up, no big deal.
1: Okay, now one of the poems in in, in Cooper's chapbook is called "Bedtime," and it begins, "I too dislike it." They're like that. It sounds, great edition. Right. So that's Cooper's book. And Belmont, a lot of Belmont is is Nathan's book, although Cooper does show up in it. Yeah. Uh, the poems have the unity, a lot of them have the unity of reacting to some of the same experiences. And it, it is six-ish years of poetry writing in that all went into Belmont. That doesn't mean it was planned as one book, and that doesn't mean the whole book is about being a suburban parent. The first part, it's a three-part book, the first part is... And some of the third part is. And the second part is about other things. Sure.
0: Let me ask you uh, real quick. I think it's interesting because becoming a parent is such a radically life-changing event. Yeah. And sometimes I get a sense in contemporary poetry that, you know, people kind of like cringe at that subject matter when – it's sort of the central moment of one's life, and I really liked the way you decided not to uh, that you were going to apply your your poetry to that experience instead of pushing it away. Um, did you ever have any hesitation at all, though, to kind of tackle the experience of parenthood and and
1: kind of family life? Not in individual poems. I did, in putting the book together, there were earlier versions of this book where part one, which is all family, parenthood stuff, was part three, because I didn't want people who were not parents and who didn't want to think about parenthood all the time to be put off by the book. And then I realized that actually part one had to be part one. (laughs) So I did worry about putting off non-parents or putting off parents who didn't want to read about dealing with kids yet again, I worried about putting such people off when I was putting the book together. But my poems are about what they turn out to be about. They're yeah. about the things that occur to me. And there are certainly, if, if you're looking for them, uh, poems whose subjects are quite far from child raising and domestic tranquility. No doubt about it. No doubt about it.
0: How old is Nathan now? He's seven. Cooper is three. So, was the second child a game changer for you as, as far as uh, the division of labor in the house? Uh, because I have one child, and and that's my wife and I can tag team that pretty easily. And shh, my daughter is eight, and then uh, but we don't have a second one. And I've seen uh, friends and family when that second one has come along, that it has uh, sort of changed the dynamics. Did you find that that was true? And also, as a second part question, do you see uh, a difference in temperament between the two children?
1: Oh, yeah. They're both absolutely wonderful, and they have a lot in common. And there is a very easily confirmed principle of research psychology that says even when you see two things that are very, very similar, you're going to concentrate on the differences. Mm -hmm. It's very easy to concentrate on differences and pretend that they're radically opposed whether you're talking about two kids in the same family or apples and oranges which after all apples and oranges are both fruit they both have seed they're much more alike than uh, apples and airplanes or uh, apples and Uh so I don't want to I don't want to say that they're super different when really they have so much in common but they are different
0: yeah I think that's a great point too because it seems that like parents kind of they they derive some sort of pleasure about pointing out those differences for some reason. I yeah. rarely hear conversations about like they are so alike in this way and that way. So I love that observation. And uh
1: you can feel it with parents of twins, by the way.
0: Yes. Yes, no doubt about it. Um but how about the just real quick, how about the working of your household when this oh. when the second came along? Was it like, oh boy
1: Things did change. Things did change. Uh we had to figure out When Cooper was an infant, Nathan was in preschool. And we have a terrific preschool that is also, it's a child care center that goes all the way from infant to enter the public school system. And we had to decide whether we were going to have Cooper in the infant room and uh, Nathan in preschool at the same time. Uh, or whether one of us, it would have been my wife, was going to stop working and stay home, or whether we were going to find some other solution. And fortunately, we found another solution, which I hope was the right solution, which was I had a new parent leave, and I had a research leave, and we found a terrific part-time nanny who started at 10 hours a week, And gradually as the year went on, uh, had more hours so I could get some writing done and I could also stay home with Cooper and my wife did not have to quit her job. And then uh, when Cooper was, uh, not quite one and a half, he was able to start going to school. Uh, when Nathan went to school and Nathan was able to start kindergarten, so that was the macro and the micro in the day to day. Having two children and and two parents means that there's not a sort of guaranteed ten minute break for either partner necessarily when one of the children's very young. Uh, it meant that I had to stop sports blogging. Yeah, the so one thing that I did when we had one child that I simply stopped doing once we had two, uh, and. Our friends who created the sports blog I used to write for also stopped blogging and handed it off when they had their second child. <laughs> so sports blogging for free is something that you can't do if you have two young children. <laughs>
0: that that uh, is, a rem- yeah. that's a things, remarkable. Yeah, I make. think
1: things are things are a little easier in terms of can can I open a book? Can my wife open a book? Mm-hmm. Now that Cooper is old. Enough that he's not likely to put non-food items in his mouth if we're not looking. For example,
0: definitely. Um, real uh, before we get closer into Belmont, just real quick. Um, uh, being a parent, uh, have you reflected on on your parents in any different way? Do you see them any different, or or you just I don't know? Uh, that, has it changed your perspective of your parents at all?
1: A little. It has changed in ways that I would have predicted, actually. Mm -hmm. Uh, It has not changed in ways that are very surprising. I appreciate the sacrifices that they made. Uh, (laughs) That is one of those things that's a cliche because it's true. Right. Look both ways before you cross the street. That's actually good advice. Uh, I appreciate the energy that they use. And I appreciate also the, the fact that there are a lot of different ways to be a responsible parent my parents have been very good about first providing advice and second saying, you know, the way that we did it is not the only way.
0: Yeah. That's really supportive actually.
1: Yeah. Um, to get to your point. Yeah, they're around a lot. <laughs> We're very lucky. We're shockingly lucky.
0: Exactly. Shockingly lucky. Yes. I've, I've had that feeling as well. Uh, how do you compare Belmont to your previous books of poetry? Uh, any, uh, Can you pinpoint any fundamental uh, changes or uh, is there kind of a consistency there?
1: Yeah. Uh, Belmont is a less anxious book. I think Uh, it's a book where there is at least as much sadness, but there's less anxiety. Mm -hmm. It rhymes more. Uh, A higher proportion of the poems make prose sense. It is less anxious about how contemporary it is in terms of its styles. Um, It is more suburban, obviously. Yes. Um, It is less engaged with visual art. It is about equally engaged with travel. It is about equally engaged with rock music. It's about equally engaged with comic books and genre fiction. Uh, When it's not a being a grown-up and and a teacher and a parent in the suburbs book. It is, I hope, uh, an out trans book. I'm a cross-dresser. I love being a parent, but when I get asked about fatherhood, I say, "Mm," because I don't really like being a man. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I put up with it. I handle it. I like wearing skirts and dresses, but I'm not going to actually go become a woman for a number of reasons. I thought I was out in my poetry Since I started publishing, I thought that the first set of poems that I published in the late 90s uh, made clear that (laughs) I was someone who was trans inside, that I was someone uh, who would really deeply prefer to be a girl or a woman, and was uh, attracted to women's experience more than to men. Yes. But the reaction to my being out in prose and to my being visible uh, again in the right events as a cross-dresser, which I wasn't for a number of years, although I was before that, uh, that reaction has suggested that however people read the earlier poems, uh, they didn't pick up on what was going on in, in my real life, in my real head, but now they can. So it is... It is a, a book where I'm, I'm out as a transgender person, I'm out as a cross-dresser, although that's as much a fact about the reception of the book and the prose around it and the poem I'm writing now and the events I'm doing now as it is a fact about what's actually in the book. And, and then the, the last thing, I suppose, that makes Belmont different from my earlier full-length books of poetry, from the first two full-length books, is that it's a book about being a, not just a teacher, but a grown-up with professional responsibilities and having other people in workplaces, other people in, in institutions treat me as a responsible adult. There are poems about that as well, about the melancholy satisfactions of uh, relative economic good fortune and relative uh, being in a position of authority. Not as groovy as, as the gender stuff and not as much fun as the playing with your kids stuff, but that is another difference Yeah, in the earlier books.
0: Precisely, yeah. No no doubt about it. It was funny that you brought up the, the cross-dressing thing just because of the article that came out, right, in the New York Times
1: yeah. magazine. I was grateful to Mark Oppenheimer for having written that article.
0: Yeah, it was a great article. I actually, <laughs> I totally stumbled upon it, like having... <laughs> Like just breakfast at a friend's house and uh, it was like totally illuminating to me and I loved it. Uh, was that a bit... yeah, <laughs> definitely. And, uh, did you, was that like a, uh, did they approach you about that story and was that a, just a no brainer of a decision? You're like, yeah, I'm totally, let's, let's do this. Or were you like, oh, let me get back to you in a week. Let me weigh in and consider this.
1: They approached me. And I said, of course, I would like to have a profile of the (laughs) magazine. I like attention, and I want people to read my books. Yes. And this is not likely to be a takedown. (laughs) Be neutral, positive, uh, and it turned out to be very positive, of course. So it was a no-brainer to say yes to the article. It was not a no-brainer to say yes to the Mm -hmm. photos. It took me a little while to realize that I actually wanted pictures of me looking feminine.
0: I've never seen those pictures and they were they were quite nice. So I think I know uh this, I
1: admire Jillian Laub a lot and I uh I'm I'm still learning the right things to do with with makeup and color contrasts and uh, she she made me look Wonderful. She made me look pretty, as pretty as I'm gonna look.
0: I remember the color of the nail polish was, uh, on one of the, you were sitting on a chair, I think. It had, it was like a green or a light green, and there was like silvers and whites, if I remember correctly, in that photograph. With a black shirt, I think. Anyway, yeah, it was aesthetically pleasing. It didn't, uh, it wasn't overstated. It didn't announce itself, uh, obnoxiously at all. It was, Almost to the point where if you were walking down the street, mm-hmm. I'm not quite sure, like, it wouldn't, like, jump out at me at all. It would, there was something uh, easily integrated into the visual scape of, say, the public sidewalk. I don't know. I just, they did a really great job. Look, we have neglected Belmont long enough. Why would you title the book this?
1: Why did I call the book Belmont?
0: Yeah, was that like a no-brainer again?
1: That was not a no-brainer, no. The book went through about five different bad titles before I realized that was what it wanted to be called. Belmont is the town where I live, and as far as I know, there's not anything else with that title, although there is actually great literature of Belmont. The distinguished and fun novelist Tom Parada is a Belmont resident. And a lot of the places in his novels, when they're not recognizably New Jersey or New Haven, are recognizably Belmont. Uh, so there is Belmont literature. Uh, Belmont is also the town or the suburb, really, to which the lovers flee in the Merchant of Venice.
0: Um, I remember seeing that little mention in your book. Uh, are you the type when you – how long have you lived in Belmont?
1: We were lucky enough to find a condo there when we moved, so since 2007.
0: And are you the type that immediately, like, say, immerses yourself in the history of the town and you want to know everything about it, or are you kind of more slow to that?
1: I wanted to know something about it.
0: <laughs> well, I have friends who, like, the minute they move to a new town, they're, like, sending me historical articles about it, you know?
1: I wouldn't do that to you.
0: okay.
1: <laughs> he did learn the history of the town. I think Jesse learned a lot of things before I did. But I knew something about it, and it, it is in, it's an interesting little town. It has qualities that not all suburbs have, uh, that make it the right suburb for us.
0: Yeah. And it's funny because I, uh, also reside in a suburb and sometimes, I don't know, I've, I've had like little punches of embarrassment about that. But then to be honest with you, the more I've gotten to know the community, the more eclectic I realize the people living in the suburbs are. Uh, I had this kind of monochromatic, uh, kind of stereotype of the people who reside there when in fact, uh, you know, there's like a, There's sculptors and artists down one street. There's a music producer with a great studio in another house. Uh, It's really kind of uh, amazingly diverse as far as people's professions. It's an interesting mix between artists, white collar, blue collar. It's like kind of a hodgepodge of people. And so it kind of changed my view of the whole thing.
1: It's it's possible that your suburb is more diverse than ours. Yeah. Um. (laughs) Yeah, you don't find that so much. I may not have found it yet. There's yeah. a music studios, one of the things that Dalman is known for is music education.
0: I see. Well hey, let's let's finally get to these poems. We have sure. uh sure. I did want to start off with the very first poem of the book, and it's poem of nine of nine AM and real quick, there's a couple poems in which you uh, are very specific about the morning hours. We have nine a.m., seven a.m., eight a.m., six a.m., and I couldn't help but think, as a parent myself, and I don't mean to alienate anyone else, the mornings are probably the most—it's uh, like a, a high wire act sometimes in the mornings, or they seem the, the most uh, uh, stimulating times are in the morning, and the most—I don't know—as uh, a as Maybe it's just particular to my family's habits in the morning of how we have to rush out of here and get everything perfectly aligned. But why did you kind of focus in on that? What was the importance of kind of nailing down that specific time period of the day?
1: Well, first I wrote Home of 9 a.m. not thinking that it's going to be part of the series at all. And I think that locally links must be... Can you hear me all right? Yeah. I don't know where that noise is coming from.
0: Oh, I can't hear it. And you sound fine.
1: Okay. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, Home of 9 a.m. is one of the earlier poems in the book. And 9 a.m. is the time that the business day starts. Not about getting out of the house. It's about getting to work and about the jobs that people do and who gets to go to work and who gets to have a a white-collar workplace, and who doesn't? So I wrote that, and and then years later, I wrote the 6 a.m. poem uh, about what happens when one child wakes up when the other has gone back to bed. As you know, two- and three- and four-year-olds sometimes get up rather early. And then I realized that I might have the basis for a series, and I thought about whether there were poems I could write around the 8 a.m. and the 7 a.m. hours.
0: Well, definitely. Whenever uh, you're ready to read this poem, please uh, please
1: go right ahead. Poem of 9 a.m. Sing for us whose troubles are troubles we're lucky to have. Cold orange juice and cold coffee corridor after corridor, as our circadian rhythms fall into place. Work is a refuge from home, and home from work. We have task force reports, but no tasks and no force. So far removed from concrete and crisp air, we might be living anywhere, enjoying each other's company within bounds. When I flew over the Grand Canyon, I loved, who wouldn't, to see the majestic gash in earth. But what moved me were the flat hints of grids that began and ended several miles away. Can, ecru, beige, knife scratches on dry toast, and then houses, some might have been trailers, so faint and isolated. Next to those faint lines, single grains of sugar, sesame seeds. We should never look down on what gives strangers comfort, on what we learn too late that we might need. Thanks, Stephen. That was great. Um,
0: You read that so well, too. Some some of my students fly through their poems when they read them. I'm like... Can you please connect to every word you're saying? And that's exactly how it came across. Uh, some of the things that jumped out to see the majestic gash in the earth was just freaked me out. I love that. Um, and the phrase within bounds completely puzzled me. But when the, when the poem ends, we should never look down on what gives strangers comfort was, was such a gesture for me at least of humility. Um, it
1: was really, Really great. I want to move on. I lost the phrase within bounds if you want, or we can just move on.
0: Oh no, no. I circled it and put in a big question mark. Yeah, please.
1: Oh, okay. Uh it means that sometimes you have friends at work who you never see after work. Yeah. It means that the workplace has physical walls that stand in for the mental dividers between one kind of experience and another. Uh and it also means that you don't touch your colleagues. That's uh, coming on to your coworkers is, is generally not a good idea, especially if it's already in a relationship.
0: <laughs> Indeed. Uh, no, that's great. I like how you brought up the idea of boundaries, and it reminds me of uh, children in many ways who are always kind of getting to know the world by by bumping into those boundaries, testing their will against those boundaries, and, yeah. and kind of learning a lot about themselves very quickly by doing that. That's great. Yeah. Um, And I guess we continue to do that as adults as well. Uh, I guess we need guardrails, essentially, is what you're
1: saying. Sometimes we need guardrails.
0: Definitely. Uh, Let's move on to uh, the Belmont Overture. Another uh, poem uh, that, and I didn't really do this on purpose, I swear, that uh, the poems I chose just simply spoke to me. And and it's a poem of 8 a.m. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Do you want to say anything about this poem before you read it?
1: Yes. It was... I think the last poem to be written of all of the poems in here, and it may have been written specifically for the book as an overture is written and sort of pieced together out of uh, an opera musical or another composed work with separate pieces. So it's meant to tie together some of the things that you see in or that one might see in the rest of part one of the book in the rest of the suburban family part of the book and in actual belmont it is a poem that repeats uh a couple of rhymes over and over it's not quite a mono rhyme but it's close uh, and it is as far as i know the only poem in the book that contains a misspelled word
0: Aha! Uh-huh. let's hear it
1: the word of the poem
0: I know. I was I was kind of purposely of ambiguous about it, that.
1: And leave it as an exercise for the reader.
0: I think I, I think we should just invite our reader to go out and get the book if they haven't and uh, discover that misspelled word themselves.
1: Yes. Belmont Overture, home of 8 AM. It's about settling down and settling in. And trying not to settle for about three miles from the urban core, where the not quite wild bald turkey, looking so lost and inquisitive next to the stop for the 74, peers into the roseless rosebush, up at the pointless oar above one townhouse's swept steps, and the U.S. and floral and nautical flags flaunt their calm semaphore. Walking past them today. With our stroller, we note, as we pass, the wreath of real twigs on our next-door neighbor's door. And beside it, another, not sold in any store, made of pipe cleaners and plastic oak leaves. It looks like a nest, something Nathan could put together with the rest of his gregarious preschool class. We have learned to carry everywhere sunscreen and insect repellent and pretzel sticks and aquaphor In case any shrubs scratch the kids, we mean it when we say we like it. We feel sure it's safe around here. And once we feel safe, it's our nature to say we're unsatisfied and pretend to seek more.
0: Thanks, Stephen. That was was great when you're describing... you know, we learned to carry everywhere sunscreen, insect repellent. Oh, my gosh. I just feel the the ornaments of parenthood weighing down.
1: <laughs> One of the things when, when you become a parent, you know, uh, if you've been watching people be parents, and you talk <laughs> about it, that your energy will change and your your time will change and your priorities will change. What I didn't realize was how much physical stuff I'd have to carry around <laughs> with me. And we, we, we sort of uh, graphed it. The maximum amount of physical stuff that you carry with you when you have a child, I think, is about <laughs> eighteen or nineteen months, and then for us to go down. Know,
0: so there's something so greatly comical about it when I've been to the beach and seen <laughs> the families just pulling carts behind them. There's some like some hard labor or something. like there's a, it's an image of uh, like uh, antiquity of like. Horrible labor of some sort. But there is one line in here that really kind of like surprised me. And it was when right after that moment, you said, we mean it when we say we like it. And I thought, (laughs) like, okay, like you mean it. And it, it kind of suggested to me that there might be a moment in which you either potentially have not meant it or that one is trying to convince themselves that they mean it. Can you kind of flesh that, that line out a little?
1: Yeah. There's a certain stake until you make it quality of some of the public and private things we're compelled to say and we may feel compelled to say about family life. Uh, you know, on on the other hand, on the other hand, uh, because we are sometimes insincere about bourgeois life, uh, and about the people closest to us, uh, especially if, if we are bourgeois, it can seem, in a literary context, in context so shaped by rebellion and skepticism and bohemia, that any professions of liking in a high culture context, uh, or in, in a uh, supposedly subversive high art context, any professions of liking for stability and reassurance and keeping your promises and loving the people you already love and staying where you are, that any professions of liking it must be insincere. And that's not the case at all. I mean it when I say I like it. Yeah. I'm aware both of the history of saying we hate it and of the history of people being insincere about the suburbs. And that's the gendered, by the way.
0: Yeah, no doubt about it. And, uh, yeah, that line just, oh, the whole poem just sort of uh Yeah, I that was a rabbit hole I, I immediately just gladly fell into and I think you you explained it. Like uh, is a rabbit
1: hole is it an update reference? Is no, that... no, not at all.
0: <laughs> yep. I didn't mean to...
1: that's, that's okay. <laughs> that's so funny. Uh, there are there are buried allusions in there, but they're not the update.
0: Okay. <laughs> uh, let's let's move on to to autumn. Uh it kind of uh, jumps a little bit forward, uh but I would love it if you could read it. I I really enjoyed this poem.
1: I'm I'm so glad you like it. Now I will find it and read it. Yes. It is toward the back of the book, isn't it? Two autumn is actually it
0: turns out on page eighteen.
1: Alright. Dog ear was standing <laughs> <laughs> I I have had
0: dog ears do that too. Two autumn.
1: Trash instead of geese has landed all over our pond. Single sheets of newsprint lie apart or overlap, as if collecting dew. Our son, who has come here in a stroller to applaud birds, applauds their absence, stands, and picks up rocks, enumerating. One, two, three, four, seven, eight. This year our summer lasts until October, an unhealthy state of which we take advantage, taking walks that last all morning, making pebbled tracks, staying away from the road. Meanwhile, big trucks patrol our Concord avenue, their red-sides single-questioning flourishing in circus script, like handbills old good news. Who but W.B. Mason? Who, indeed? Yellow Clover abides beside all our footpaths. Hundreds of miles away last night, a tumultuous infestation of gnats shut down for over an hour of baseball game. The Indians won. An opaque, sticky cloud befuddled the pitcher's no end. By then, we were almost asleep, myself and Jesse and Nathan in his crib, guarded by his fortification of blankets, for whose instruction our slow world was made.
0: Thanks, Stephen. That was great. This poem really, uh, you know, and I kind of allowed myself to say, like, I might be totally misreading this. But when, before I kind of get into that, uh, your sense of humor isn't apparent at first in these poems, <laughs> but they start bubbling to the surface, like, who but W.B. Mason? Who indeed? You know, it's just, just struck, a. Uh, Struck me as funny, I don't know why But the poem seems to be like uh, Each stanza seems to be building Kind of somewhat mundane And I don't mean mundane in kind of a negative way But just kind of like, hey, these normal observations And like sometimes uh, Sometimes one might wonder Like, why am I doing this again? (laughs) And then the poem seems to just Fall right into the Exact reason why all of these things Are happening, and it seemed like At the end of the poem you're like, ah For this, for this I do it and it was yeah. really, really touching. And the fact that autumn is uh, somewhat somewhat being delayed um, kind of speaks uh, of a certain energy as well in the poem. Um,
1: I, I can talk about the poem if you like. I would love for you Things to. Things to say about it. Actually, this poem has an especially uh, sticky intertextuality to it. The title is of course the title of a poem by John Keats about yeah. the delights of the fruitful season and about compensation in Keats's To Autumn. He says, uh, to Autumn, uh, that, that it's okay that the songs of Autumn are not of the spring, uh, not, not the songs of mating and of first love and of newness and of novelty and of excitement. Uh, but rather the sounds of autumn and the feelings of autumn are feelings of repletion, of having made certain decisions, of having already borne fruit. Uh, Keith says, uh, where are the songs of spring now? Where are they? Think not of them. Thou hast thy music too. And, uh, to autumn is also an evening poem and this is an evening poem. So this is the Belmont version of to autumn of being satisfied with uh, having borne fruit, as it were. It's also a poem of anxiety about global warming, and it's a poem of trying to enjoy the awkward uh, half-formedness of toddler imagination and toddler language. It's also a little bit of a, a disguised homage, among other things, to some of the poems I was reading at that time by the, the very, very considerable, talented, powerful poet Don Rebell, uh out in, in Nevada. Uh, it's one of two poems in here that I think are influenced by reading Don Ravel's poetry, uh, which often drifts across or scans a landscape and tries to connect the distinctive features of that landscape to whatever is giving him purpose and meaning. And for him, what gives him purpose and meaning is often Christianity. Uh, he's got two kids and he puts them in his poems, but he also puts Christ and the Christ child in, into his poems. He's a very, very passionate religious believer, which I'm not. Uh, and he's also a baseball fan. <laughs> uh, which I'm not. I, I, don't mind watching it. I generally want the Red Sox to win, but <laughs> that's not my sport. Uh, but it's, it, it's his sport. And I think, uh, the fact that I was writing about him and, and, and reading him when I was working on this poem has something to do with the nativity scene at the end and with the, Baseball. That was a real baseball game, by the way. The Yankees, I believe, and he's a Yankees fan, were playing the Indians. And, uh, the game was stopped for a while because there was a cloud of gnats so thick it made it impossible to play baseball.
0: I remember that game.
1: Okay. You may be a baseball fan. And also, you know, the, I'm, I'm from Washington, D.C., uh, where the, the American football team is it's called dreadfully the Redskins. Yes, it's
0: <laughs> raised some controversy lately.
1: <laughs> it, it's, one might say it's simply racist. Yeah. Uh, calling your team the Cleveland Indian is not quite that bad. It's a little dodgy. Uh, <laughs> they, you know, if the world can gotcha. the change their name, uh, and it seemed to me that having nature try to prevent the Yankees from beating the Indians at baseball uh, was almost as good as having nature try to prevent the Yankees from beating the Indians during the several hundred year saga of uh, colonization and genocide that is part of the history of the North American continent.
0: Goodness. I am so happy you unpacked this poem for
1: me. Uh, and there's it's actually there's more, there's more. <laughs> if you've, if you've never lived in New England, you may not know that who, but WB Mason is what it says really on the side of the, you, you know, you know that.
0: Yeah, uh, no, I live, I live not too far from uh, Belmont for a while in this tiny town called Acton, which is oh. right outside of uh, Concord and, and a tinier town called Maynard. So, uh, But it's a a route to town, Uh, you know. uh, What what should be said in the
1: podcast is that W.B. Mason is a stationary supplier, a a paper company that might deliver paper to your office that is the sponsor (laughs) of the Red Sox. So their slogan and their logo are associated in New England with baseball.
0: And you nailed the circus kind of vibe that uh, gives off when you see it. Because I didn't know when I first moved there, I didn't. I would see it and I did never associate it like, oh, of course it's a, it's a paper company, no doubt about it. Like, I didn't know what it was at first. But you know what's really nice that, that you were able to talk at length about this poem because, you know, some poets are interesting in the way they write and that it's a very mysterious art to them. They have trouble articulating or they just don't want to or they have difficult articulating that, uh, you know, kind of just what the poem not is about. But kind of the choices they made, what it came from. I don't know if they're being secretive, but I it's refreshing to hear you kind of be able to just kind of really just talk about it because it was a thing that you were present when you made it. Um, so I really find that, I don't know, kind of novel for some reason. Let's uh let's move on. I want to uh take a look at the poem Flooded Meadow and it's toward the end of the book. Yeah. Um got it. Are you it seems that there were is there a uh, a municipal drainage problem in Belmont because I feel like uh or there's these floods that have come up in your poems I think more than once. Uh is is there anything you want to say about this uh poem and yeah,
1: what, what the flooding's all about. Climate change threatens us all. The flooding stuff is about uh, national and and global eco catastrophe. It's not about Belmont, uh, although we do live near a pond. Um, the pond grows, but it hasn't since we've lived there flooded in any way that uh, interferes with with human flourishing. Uh, yeah. But I do look at it sometimes and 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 wonder how many other bodies of water are going to damage how many other lives, and the the meadow I was looking at when I started writing the poem was actually in Vermont. Okay. Not even, I, I don't know that it's set in a place, uh, but I was looking at a, a meadow in Vermont when I started writing it uh, that was very wet. Yeah. And I did what I often do when I look at nature, which is I think about cities and human societies and how people live, uh, except that here the people are actually bees and other insects.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting because you brought up a couple times that you kind of have your finger on the pulse of kind of the current state of our environment and it's, and, and, and the desperate attention it needs by the very people who are neglecting it. Is that, is that like a tough subject matter? To, like, have you thought about how you wanted to integrate that into poetry? Uh, because it's not overtly announcing itself. It doesn't say, oh, here is this, you know, you're, it's not like you're importing random statistics about uh, climate change or anything. So it's it, there's a subtlety to it. And I'm wondering, uh, you know, is that something you had to wrestle with
1: or negotiate? Things I think about and have strong feelings about sooner or later show up in some of my poems. Uh, the fact that we're slowly baking the planet is something I think about. <laughs> so it shows up in some poems.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I guess there's something so refreshing. I don't know. Uh, I think it's just me, but I don't know why it seems crazy that you actually write about the things on your mind. So uh, <laughs> go, go ahead and read a uh, flooded meadow.
1: Flooded meadow. Low dandelion leaves are zoned commercial, with their promise of puffballs to come. Bits of dew spackle the high grass asymmetrically. They are sleek apartment windows. Skyscrapers are weeds. Tall sprigs of goldenrod patrol the blown-down city line. There is another world in this world, but it was not made for you. Round onion grass stalks are old monuments to persistence in hard times. You could live up inside one and learn to like it, cramped quarters, cooking smells, and all. Two bees report on traffic, warning listeners to the Animopoly channel as the natural disaster of humanity comes closer every morning. Work while you can, they say.
0: Thanks, Stephen. That was great. And this poem you said came out of an experience in Vermont. Um, the The phrase, there is another world in this world, mm-hmm. but it was not made for you. Do you want to say anything about that? That, that jumped out to me. And, and I just want to say too is that your poems, they honor, um, they honor the image as uh, a place to yield great meaning and, and experience. And your images are always striking. You have a very good eye and you guide the reader's eye very nicely, but you do have these moments of, of aphorism in a way. Thank you. And, You're welcome. And I was wondering if there is, and maybe you don't, but is there anything you want to say about this? There is another world in this world, but it was not made for you.
1: Yeah. Well, this is a a poem that worries about what we're doing to our own civilization and civilizations and cities and our own bad planning and about what we're doing to the other species on the planet. And because I think about zoning and urban planning more often than I think about wilderness, I look at a little patch of non-human nature and imagine it as a planned city that tries, as our cities I hope do, to uh, put different kinds of land use in the right place and to plan for natural disasters or for man-made disasters. And that's what's going on in the poem. It looks back, I think, to uh, the way that kids play with action figures and construct miniature worlds that are more fun than the real world and more comprehensible, perhaps, than the real world with action figures, and and those are little imaginative worlds. You can put your Star Wars figures in outer space uh, or in uh, an amusement park uh, or another planet or in a a delightful household. It's very different from your household, and that's their world. It's not yours. Uh, nature and, and the, the lives of non-human animals and imaginative, non-realist fiction and children's pretend playing are all ways of constructing another world. Uh, Tolkien called them secondary worlds, worlds that are inside our world. But we can't actually live there full time. We have to spend at least part of our time and as Wordsworth says, the real world where we find our happiness, or not at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, not as sanguine about that as Wordsworth was, maybe. I think we have to find some of our happiness in imagined other worlds, but we can't live there. It's not. They're not for us. Uh, and so that's one of the things that that italic sentence means. It I think comes from reading John Crowley, the great author of contemporary non-realist fiction who plays in his very ambitious long fantasy novel, little big with size and questions of whether the magical spirits who aren't human inhabit worlds that are bigger than us or smaller than us. Mm. Um, And it also, I I think refers to the supposed impossibility of imagining non-human consciousness.
0: Thank you for exploring that one line for us that was incredible you asked and i didn't have a moment of regret at all that was amazing um yeah i mean things about you said so much that i could talk about forever but in the interest of time yeah uh we have to move on to the last poem in your book and that is called butterfly with parachute Mm -hmm. um real quick uh was it a big decision to end the book on this poem not a big decision, but I mean, just like, why did you do it? Why did you choose this poem as the last poem?
1: I like it a lot. I think it sums up a lot of what's going on in the book. It, I got positive feedback from other people whenever they saw it. It seems to be a poem that others like a lot. Uh, and and uh, people I trust like a lot. It sums up claims about the importance of the imagination and the importance of childhood and the importance of the the parental role and the adult role in taking care of children and the importance, sometimes unfortunately, of the real limits of the real world. And it is trying to do all that in a single image.
0: I think you successfully discovered what you were looking for. Uh, uh, Whenever you're ready to read it, that'd be great. Thanks.
1: Butterfly with Parachute. A real one wouldn't need one, but the one Nathan draws surely does. Four oblongs the size and color of popsicles. Green apple, toasted coconut, and grape flanked two per side by billowing valentine hearts in a frame of scotch tape. Alive, it could stay off the floor for a few unaerodynamic minutes, thrown as a paper airplane for one or two more. Very sensibly, therefore, our sun gave it something not to keep it apart from the ground forever, but rather to make safe its descent. When we ask that imagination discover the limits of the real world only slowly, Maybe this is what we meant.
0: Stephen Burt, that was amazing, and thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you. And uh, for those of you who don't know Belmont, published by Grey Wolf Press, it it awaits you. Um, Please go out and grab it. Uh, Stephen, thanks again.
1: Thank you.